book of Zechariah, or Zechariah, and so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We are in chapter 4, as you can see on the slide, and if you don't have a Bible, there's some available in seats near you and underneath the seat there, and you can even see the page number if you're not so familiar with how to find that book. Just turn to that particular page number. Uh, we've been studying the book of Zechariah now for, I believe this is our fifth study in the book. And it's always important for us to remind ourselves where we're at, what's going on in this particular book, what's the context of the chapter that we're in now. And so as we come to the fourth chapter, I'll remind you just of a couple of things. We're talking about a post-exile book. That is a book that was written uh, after the period of Jewish exile. Um, particularly the southern kingdom of the Jewish people, what was referred to as Judah, when they were taken off into Babylon, and they were there for a period of about 70 years, that's their period of exile. And as time went on, uh, new leadership came in, new kings, whole new empires. As a matter of fact, granting the Jewish people, you can still be our subjects, but you can do it from your homeland if you so desire. And about, maybe we, we estimate, about 10% of the Jews that were living in Babylon as prisoners decided to go back to Israel, go back to Jerusalem, uh, remaining subjects to the Medo-Persian Empire. As we've discussed, they were back in the land for about 15 years, 16 I think is more accurate, but for about 15 years they were back in the land. They had started rebuilding their temple, they had started cultivating their fields once more, all the things necessary, and they were fired up for this opportunity initially. But as time went on, there were demands and different things, and the kids had to get to their sports and all that stuff, and sort of their fervor waned a bit. And then you throw on top of that, their work didn't seem like it was really having much of an impact, so why bother? Uh, and so there was a real sense of discouragement in the land of Israel at the time that this book was written. Remember this book and the one that we just studied previous, the book of Haggai, they're contemporaries of one another. Those two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, were contemporaries of one another. And they both had the same mission, to speak a word or uh, to bring a word of encouragement to a discouraged people, which is certainly an important ministry that I'm sure many people in our day could, could use as well. And so, to a couple of people, please be reminded this, uh, that you want to know, Joshua is the high priest. We saw last week's message was for him. And then this fellow by the name of Zerubbabel, who is the, the governor of the Jewish people, of the nation. Uh, and as we're going to see, this week's message is really for him. Last week, chapter 3, Joshua, you have a high priest that is discouraged, just like the people were discouraged. The high priest trying to lead those people was discouraged. And so that vision that Zechariah the prophet received was a vision for him. And it, again, you may remember, it was a vision of a great spiritual battle. Somehow God opened his eyes up, gave him insight into what was going on with Joshua. Now remember, Joshua himself was discouraged, but Joshua was also representative of the Jewish people as a whole. He was the high priest of the Jewish people. He was the one that would go to God to represent them, and he would, so to speak, come from God to inform the people. He would represent God to the people and people to God. And he was discouraged. He was in this battle. He was struggling. He and the whole nation, they were a filthy people. They were sinners. Uh, and these were the cream of the crop of the Jewish people. And Satan there accusing him and that whole battle that went down, we spent our time considering it and how the Lord, such an important concept for us to understand, how the Lord's message to Joshua wasn't, 
all right, clean yourself up. Like, you know, he's got some good points. You are a mess. Yeah. It wasn't that. It was, let me take those dirty robes and give you clean ones. The righteousness of Christ that becomes ours. And we're able to minister not because we in and of ourselves are clean, not because we in and of ourselves are righteous, but we're able to minister because of the work that God does in our lives changing us. And we have a testimony that we can bring to other people, how we can do that same work in their lives as well. And so Joshua learned that valuable lesson and no doubt was encouraged by it. Now we have another fellow. We have the political leader. And his name again, it's Zerubbabel. And chapter 4 is going to be a message for him, but I think it'll be a message for each of us as well. Because again, uh, we find ourselves, maybe we're not the spiritual leaders of the nation, but maybe we do have a role in sort of the, the civil field or in the non-spiritual, we'll call it the secular field. And so when we go off to our place of work, how we represent the Lord. When we are in our community, how we represent the Lord. When we're in our, with our extended family or maybe even our immediate family, how we have to represent the Lord in that particular place. Well, that's Zerubbabel. He's the governor of the people. He's in charge of this whole work that is going on in the land, rebuilding the land, reestablishing the land, overseeing what is going on with the temple. And just like all of the people and just like Joshua the high priest, we learned that Zerubbabel was discouraged as well. You ever been there? You ever started well and then wondered if you could continue at all and just wanted to give up? Well, that's where this fella is. And this chapter, chapter 4, is, his, is the fifth vision of the eight visions that Zechariah receives, that God trying to communicate a message in a picture of sorts to Zechariah that he's to bring to the people and ultimately to give to you and I. And so let's read about that vision. It's chapter... Starts in verse 1. It says, Now, and the angel who talked with me came again and he woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered, and he said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, Nope. I said, No, my Lord. <laughs> then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Fifth vision. So he's already received four visions. It seems as if, it doesn't have to be this, but it seems as if all of these visions he's going to receive are in a single evening, quite an evening. And here, maybe from the emotional uh, drama of all that's been going on, he conks out, he knocks himself, he falls asleep. And so the angel comes and has to actually wake him up, wakes him up out of this stupor and sees this vision. No doubt I have to feel he's thinking, I'm, I'm dreaming now. Because uh, this is a crazy one, isn't it? I, I, after I got done reading this, like, you got it? Uh-uh. <laughs> like, I don't know what's going on. And he doesn't either. He's even saying, like, don't you know what this is? Mm-mm. I don't know what it is. A little later, he's going to say the same thing here. And so here he is. He's sleeping. This angel comes along, and he wakes him up. And in this vision, he shows him, among other things, it's a vision of a golden lampstand. 
Now, if in your mind's eye, I, or maybe we have a picture of it. Did we, did we get a picture of this? That's like a menorah. You, you've seen those menorahs. Maybe some of your Jewish friends, they have it in their, their front window during Hanukkah and stuff like that. Now, the, the golden lampstand was a key item of furniture in the Jewish temple. And today, if you go over to Jerusalem today, you, you can see that there is the, uh, a group that's called the Bible Institute. And the Bible Institute, they're, they're hoping for, is Mark with us? Where are you at, Mark Fuller, not here? Stumbling again. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, the Bible Institute is hoping to get all of the, the furniture and necessary things for a future temple. They're hoping to get all those things properly made, stored, and ready so that if a future temple is ever built, they can move right in there. And they have erected, erected uh, this golden lampstand. Now, it's right there in the middle of Jerusalem. It's behind this glass, uh, it's encircled thing there. The glass is probably 10 feet thick, I don't know. Uh, and what caught me by surprise is it's about six or eight feet tall, this golden menorah there. So you can go and you can stand next to it and take a picture next to this thing. You're not getting in there because of the glass that's around it, but it's really, really tall. So this is what our friend is seeing here. He is seeing this golden lampstand. And it almost certainly resembled the one that would have been inside of the temple. Now, most people didn't go inside the temple, but the priest did. And Zechariah was a priest. And so he would have seen this. He would have been familiar with this. He would have known what it was. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in the context of the key calls of discouragement among the Jewish people, we're trying to build this temple and it's a piece of junk is how they looked at it. We compare it to what it was before, and now look what we put here. This is terrible. In the context of the discouragement brought about because of where things were with the temple, it shouldn't surprise us that at least one of the visions had to do with some of the items and so on that were inside of the temple. Let me remind you of a few things about the temple. Most of us are familiar with it. We heard of it, uh, but we forget as you know, we, we study other passages of Scripture. The temple wasn't just like a church building of sorts. And so a church building, you know, it's usually a, a building like this, rectangular in shape, circular in shape, something like that. And we all come and we all sit inside of it. We, we listen, we sing some songs, whatever might happen. We do what we do while we're there. Then we all get up and we leave this church building. The temple building or the temple structure wasn't like that. Very few people actually went into the building itself. Now, the temple, we'll put that in the quotation marks, it was comprised of both a building, or earlier they called it the tabernacle, and it was a tent, but we'll just stick with the temple. It was a building, and it also included a courtyard. And activities, worship activities, took place both inside the building and outside in the courtyard. Now, the average person, like you and I, we would not be allowed inside the temple building. Only the priests were allowed to go inside of the temple building. All of the worshipers, the average folks, so to speak, they stayed out in the courtyard where there was also worship and activity that took place there. Now, the priests would go inside the building. The building only had two rooms. Later on, when Solomon sort of enlarged the temple, they built side rooms and things like that that were only accessed from outside of the building. And so the actual building itself that the priests could go into, it only contained two rooms. It was, about the size of a, it was about the shape of a rectangle, and one-third of the building was sort of in the, in the front of the building. That was called the Most Holy Place, also known as the Holy of Holies. 
the other two-thirds of this building uh, was the second room, and that was called the holy place. So there was the most holy place and the holy place. And what separated those two rooms was a large veil. They say it was something like eight or ten inches thick, this veil. It ran about 30 feet up into the ceiling and the width of the building, and that separated the one room from the other. The only one who was allowed to go behind that veil into the most holy place. So you're all with me here? The only one that was allowed to go into the most holy place was the high priest. And he could only go in there one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. The only people that were allowed to go into the holy place, that front room, were the priest. And they would go in there on a daily basis, and they would do the necessary things that they had to do in that place. So very few people went into the temple building in and of itself. In addition to that, there was very few or little furniture that was in the temple building. And so in that most holy place, the only furniture that, that really comprised that room was what, what is called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular box. It had some angel ornaments on top of it. The lid of this box was called the mercy seat, though you didn't sit there, but it was called the mercy seat. It was kind of a bowl of sorts or uh, and that was where the priest would, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in, he would pour out the blood of the lamb, and it would be poured out onto the mercy seat and spill out over this Ark of the Covenant. That work would take place, and that was representative of the atoning blood of the sacrifice covering the sins of the people, ultimately what Jesus did on the cross for us. In the front room, the room that was called the holy place, there was only three pieces of furniture. And so you would walk in the room, on this side over here, that's, it's actually considered the south side of the temple, there was the table of showbread. In front of you, right in front of this veil, was the altar of incense. And then on the right side of the room, the north side of the building, that would be where the lampstand was that Zechariah is seeing in this particular vision. Those priests would go in there. They would go in daily and do something at the altar of incense, they would go in twice daily and do something at the lampstand, and they would go in once a week and do something at the table of showbread. And so Zechariah, being a priest, would have had his opportunity, at least once, no doubt, in his life, to go in there and perform some of these responsibilities and duties. And so here now, God is giving him a vision, and he would have known immediately, that's the lampstand. Yet, it wasn't quite the lampstand. Because the lampstand that would have been in the temple that Zechariah would have interacted with, or at the very least the priest would have interacted with, was just like the picture, maybe throw it up there again, where you have sort of a main stem and then you have these seven other uh, branches that come off of it. Notice no candles that are kind of like shoved down into them because they, didn't ha they, they used a different system to light these lamps that were there, which I'll talk about in a few moments here. But each one of the items that were there in the temple were symbolic of some reason. They were real, but they symbolized something else. So for instance, the altar of incense. The priest would come, he it would light the incense, and the smoke would rise. And that was to be representative of the prayers of the people. And so the priest, or, yeah, the priest would come in, light this incense, no doubt praying as he is doing so, and as the prayers of the people sort of rise up to God in heaven, the altar of incense was a symbol of that. 
the table of showbread, show, the, the bread, we call it showbread, but it's just simply bread, there were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And bread is what people come together, they enjoy with one another in fellowship. And it was designed to communicate the way in which God desires to have fellowship with his people and how they can enjoy fellowship with his people. That bread would be changed out once a week with fresh bread. And then the lampstand. Now the lampstand is the only thing that gave light inside of this temple. And so obviously it is very important. Twice daily, the priest had to go in, replace the oil, because the way the lamps worked back then was, was essentially there was, a, there was a bowl of sorts. The bowl would be filled with, uh, with olive oil, and then there would be a wick in there that sort of soaked up that olive oil. It was a thin little wick, like a, a candle wick that you would have. And the candle wick would come up out of the olive oil, out of the top of this bowl, and that's what they would light. And it would stay lit as long as there was oil that was in this bowl drenching this wick. Are you with me here? I wish I could show you somehow, but I can't. Um, that oil would remain in this lampstand bowl, and it's a small little cup, um, for about 12 hours. And then they'd have to go in, replace the wick, replace the oil, and they would have to do this every 12 hours. Because what the lampstand symbolized is how God desired for Israel to be a light to the world. Are you with me on this? And God perpetually desired for Israel to be a light to the world. And so that light couldn't go out. If you're familiar with the holiday of Hanukkah, they didn't have any oil to go in. It, this, Hanukkah, th that story was about 160 or so BC. They didn't have enough oil to fill the lamps. And yet miraculously, it remained lit for a period of about seven days until more oil could get there. And there was outside forces that were causing trouble and war and all that kind of stuff. And so that's what Jews celebrate with Hanukkah. They celebrate that miraculously the lampstand remained lit. You with me? All right, I've kind of veered off a bit. Let me try and find out where we are in, my, in our study here. Okay, so a normal lampstand, straight up and down, seven uh, branches to it. This particular one that our friend is seeing here, it differs because this one has the seven branches, but it also has a bowl on top of it. You see that there in verse 2. He says, I said, and I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold, same as before, but with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips and each of the lamps that are on top of it. Now that bowl that's on top of this lampstand, look at verse 3, it's going to be filled directly from the olive oil that comes from two olive trees that are by this lampstand, one on the left side and one on the right side. If you just for a moment look down at verse 12, we are told the purpose of those olive trees. Verse 12 says, And the second time I answer, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes, from which the golden oil is poured out? And then down there, it's going to be explained that the oil from the trees would fill the bowls, which through channels would fill each of the branches of the seven-lamped uh, lampstand. Are you with me? We have a, a picture um, here. Now, this is a drawing, and most of the drawings I saw were cartoonish in nature, as this one kind of is. Um, but as you can see, you got that bowl that is there, in this case, a little bit off to the side of it. But it's receiving its oil directly from those two trees, which are feeding directly into this lamp. 
Again, remember, what did the priests have to do? They had to go into the temple every day, twice a day, replace this oil. In this case, they never have to go in and replace it again because the trees themselves are going to be the one that feed it. So what does this vision mean? Again, what's the whole purpose of this book? To encourage Zerubbabel, to encourage the people. So what is this meant to symbolize? What is this message that God has given to Zechariah so that he can bring it, uh, give it to Zechariah and then through Zechariah to the people? Well, again, every one of these things is symbolic. And the lampstand, among uh, its, its primary goal or um, purpose of its symbolism, is that the nation of Israel was meant to be a light to the world. That's an Old Testament message, that they were to be a light to the world, essentially that the Gentile nations would look at the Jewish nation, see the Jewish people who were in proper relationship with their God, experience the blessings that come from God, and say to themselves essentially, man, I wish I had a relationship with that God too. That was, that's the purpose of the nation of Israel, among other things. And so the, Isaiah the prophet, he wrote this. He said, arise, shine. This is to the nation of Israel. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And notice, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Another word for that word nations there can also be translated and the Gentiles. And so the idea was that the surrounding nations, the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, would see God's blessing on the nation of Israel and essentially want to be a part of that blessing or want to be a part of that nation. Much like, you know, the book of Ruth. What, was, what did she exclaim? Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Moabite. But she saw God's blessing upon this woman, Naomi, and she said, I want that. And so I'm leaving my home to be a part of your home. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so this concept of them being a blessing so that other nations would be drawn, it's, it's the same concept, a different picture, but it's the same concept that Jesus uses in his Sermon on the Mount, much more, I think, commonly uh, that we're familiar with. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, and you are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, so let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Make sure you catch that. See your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This wasn't about drawing people to themselves, whether that be the nation of Israel or be you and I. It's not about drawing people to ourselves, why are you such a good person? It's about people observing your life and saying, what's the secret of your life? Where's the peace come from in your life? How's the ability to deal with conflict come in your life? Well, let me tell you how it comes in my life. It's because of the work that God is doing in my life. Really, I'd like to hear more about that work. I'd be happy to tell you. You see, that's the whole point, pointing people to heaven. Not pointing them to ourselves, but pointing to them to our Father who is in heaven. And this golden lampstand was meant to symbolize that. It was to be a light to the nation, a representation of Israel. 
And so they would go in regularly in a day and age without electricity. They're not just going to flip a switch. They'd go in regularly, fill the oil, trim uh, the, the wick, and so on. That's called trimming the lamp. And they would do that twice a day. But here in this vision, Zechariah sees they never need to do it again because the olive trees themselves are going to fill the bowl and the bowl's going to fill each of the lamps and the lamp's going to light this lampstand. Now, if you're a bit confused, so was Zechariah. Look at verse 4. He says, what are these, my Lord? Now, notice Lord there is, it's not capitalized. He's speaking to this angel. And the angel responds and he says, you don't know what these are in so many words? Uh, and Zechariah says, no, I, I really, I have no idea. Now, I appreciate this about Zechariah and, and many other prophets. This is not the first time in our study of the minor prophets in particular where they see something, they have no idea what it is, and they just sort of look dumb, and it prompts an angel of some sort to say, you don't understand, do you? And they're like, no, I don't. They're not trying to fake it. They're not trying, oh, sure, I, I understand what it is. Oh, yeah, tell me. Uh... Uh, they, they just, they're very honest, and they're open here. I don't understand. He freely admits that he was going to need a little bit more information, and so, and which is good. Go to God. Tell him, Lord, I don't understand what's going on here. You don't have to pretend like you do or fake it or whatever. If you don't know, you don't know. Pick up a book, do some reading, see if you, know, you figure it out that way, but certainly go to God in prayer and say, Lord, I need you to help me understand what is going on here with this passage or with this experience or with what I'm going through right now. And so he does. He says, no, I don't know what's going on. And so the angel says to him, verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Stop there. What's this vision? This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is the message. Now remember, Haggai, God gave him sermons to preach. Zechariah, God gave him pictures to convey. And so what's this vision about, this lampstand with trees around it and bowls and so on? This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, I would say I was studying this passage probably for about four days this week until I realized that Zerubbabel is not Zechariah. Is it hard for you too? Can't they be like Bob and Steve, like completely different names? They both start with a Z. They're both names that you know, I don't hear much around. But we have Zerubbabel and we have Zechariah. The vision is to Zechariah. The message is to Zerubbabel. Zechariah the prophet, Zerubbabel the governor. And the message to Zerubbabel is this. This is the word of the Lord to him. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now for us to understand the connection between two olive trees that produce oil, that fill a bowl, that perpetually feed this lampstand, and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's important that we have an understanding that throughout the scripture, that oil stands as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. All right? Many times, uh, Jim read the passage there, I suspect that's why he selected it, when David uh, was anointed with the oil, that wasn't just because that oil was going to do something magic in his life, it was a symbol of the anointing of God's Holy Spirit that was coming upon uh, David now, who is about to be the king. And so oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's not the only symbol in the Bible that is used. Fire is oftentimes used. You remember the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire, uh, and in other instances like that. 
Wind is often used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Rain coming down like the Holy Spirit. And so there's a lot of different uh, symbols of the Holy Spirit. But one of the more common ones is oil. It's one of the more that, it, that is prevalent uh, symbols that found throughout the Old Testament. And again, it's why the various officials, whether it be the high priest or the priest or uh, the king, why they would be anointed with oil as they began to minister. A good representation of the Holy Spirit. What does oil do? And again, we're not talking about like motor oil. We're talking about like olive oil. Um, what does olive oil do or what can oil in and of itself do? Well, it cuts down on friction. Doesn't the Holy Spirit do that in your life? When you, you, know, you go, you gather with your extended family. For, I always, you must think my extended family is horrible. They're, they're not. They're nice enough people. But inevitably, one person says something, and you're like, yeah, I disagree. You disagree. And you say a little prayer, Lord. You've got to help me love this person. And the Holy Spirit enters in, and he helps me to love in such a way, and he hopefully is working in their life as well, and cuts down on the potential friction in relationships. Oil was a key component in the lighting of a lamp, as you know, I've been trying to explain. It gives illumination. You ever read the Bible and have no idea what you just read? And then you stop and you're like, oh my gosh, Lord, would you just help me? Like I just jumped into this, started reading like I'm reading the newspaper. Lord, would you come? Would you meet with me? You go back, maybe a little slower, you read through it, and now all of a sudden it makes sense. And the Holy Spirit has brought illumination. Oil was used in, in that day to anoint and to freshen. You didn't go take a shower and, you know, with your soap and all that kind of stuff. Often they would use oil to refreshen, uh, to freshen up, much like perfume or cologne or something like that. And in the New Testament, Paul describes the working of the Holy Spirit and how as God's Holy Spirit is working in our lives, we become the fragrance of Christ in the interactions that we have with other people. That's the Holy Spirit at work. So oil is a really, really good picture excuse me, a really, really good picture of the work of the Holy Spirit and what he does in the lives of his people. And the word of the Lord then for Zerubbabel is in order that he might know that this work that was before him, this work that has caused him discouragement and all of the people discouragement, this work that was too great for him, this work, no doubt that he said, me, I can't lead these people to do this kind of a task. This is beyond me. The word of the Lord for him was Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It was a word that was, a meant, to, that was meant to assure him that the Holy Spirit would continually supply all that he needed. What did the priests need to do? They needed to go in twice a day, every day, for all of eternity, and light this lamp. But Zerubbabel would have all the power that he needed because it would be supplied miraculously to him by these two trees, so to speak. That work of building the temple, but maybe even more significantly, that work of Israel being a light to all the nations of the world. If anyone in, in Zechariah's day, Zerubbabel's day, looked at Israel, nobody from the outside, nobody would have said, man, we want to be a nation just like that. Because their nation was a mess. Their farms were destroyed. Their, even their temple to their God, who supposedly is great God, look at it. It's lying there in ruins. Everything was a mess. Nobody would have wanted to be this. And so that task, that work that was before Zerubbabel, that was before Joshua, it was impossible to them. 
But the message to Zerubbabel is this, not by strength, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The Lord would provide the power that they would need. Again, think of the message from last week, week with Joshua. Joshua was supposed to represent the people to God and God to the people. And Joshua was a filthy mess, as was the nation. And there was nothing Joshua could do. He couldn't, you know, try to clean himself up. He was a filthy mess, stained completely. And God enters in, removes the filthy garments, and gives him new garments. Well, it's the same type of idea and message that's communicated now to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, you're powerless in and of yourself to do this. But not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. To fulfill its purpose as a light to the world, the message here now to Zerubbabel and the nation is this. You must remain in constant and maintained communion with me, that is, with God. It wasn't going to be by her might that she would complete this. It wouldn't be by her might or her power that Israel would complete this. It wouldn't be by her clever workings. It wouldn't be by her schemings. It wouldn't be by the size of her bank account. It wouldn't be by her personality or the the perfection of an organizational structure or anything like this. If they were going to complete what it was that God had them to do, it could only be by them maintaining a connection with God's Holy Spirit. The source of her power would be God's Holy Spirit and her proximity to the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a really, really important lesson for us in so many ways. Because here we are, we're people, we're trying to honor the Lord. We're trying to walk with him. Maybe some are here that are still trying to understand what it means to have a relationship with God. But for those of us that know what it means to have a relationship with God and how we can have a relationship with God, we're trying to walk our walk well. We're trying to run our race well, as it says in the book of Hebrews. And, you know, we're doing pretty good at times. We're struggling along. We're not getting frustrated, and we're not yelling at people. We're not doing this, and we're not doing that. We're staying away from those things. But the reality is this. We can do that for a period of time in our own strength. All right, we start the new year off. I got my New Year's resolutions. I'm not going to curse at people or yell at people or beat up people or do any of these other horrible things anymore. And in our own strength, we can do that for a week or two weeks or maybe three weeks or maybe even beyond that. But eventually, we come to the end of ourselves. But everything changes when we come into proximity of those two olive trees, so to speak. And the oil, symbolizing the Holy Spirit, fills us up from the inside, and he begins to empower us to do the work that God would have us to do. And so whether we're talking about walking our walk in a way that is honoring to him and brings glory to him, or we're talking about running some kind of a ministry, or we're talking about running a church, or serving in the Sunday school area and all of that, you can do it for a while in your own strength. But eventually, you're going to come to, your end, to the end of yourself. And the only way that God's work is truly going to get completed is as you are in constant proximity to the Holy Spirit and to God himself. And that's the message to Zerubbabel, and it's a message to you and I. Jesus said something very similar. Jesus said this in John chapter 15. He said, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you 
unless you abide in me. And you think if you have an apple tree or something in your backyard, and one of those branches breaks off, but you keep it lying there, you know, alongside of it. Well, next spring it's not going to bear fruit. It's certainly not two springs from now because the life is gone. But as it's attached to that trunk, as it's attached to that vine, it will continue to produce fruit. And that's the point Jesus is making. He says, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and he withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and they are burned. We must stay connected to the source because it's by his divine power alone that the work of God over the long haul is completed. Again, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now the angel goes on, look at verse 7. He says, who are you, O great mountain? Zechariah is standing there, but he's talking to this mountain now. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. I think the context here, the great mountain in Zechariah's way is the completion of this temple. Because at the very end, it talks about this top stone or this capstone that is there. But in reality, the mountain can be any insurmountable task that is before him or before us. And so whether it's the nation being a light to the world and being a positive influence or it's the temple that is there in front of him, that was this impossible task. And now the angel with Zechariah standing there observing, he says here, who are you, O great mountain, standing in the way there of Zerubbabel? Before Zerubbabel, you're going to become a great plain, just a flat uh, spot of land that could be easily traversed. And he says, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Because God's hand of grace was going to be upon Zerubbabel, he was going to see this temple completed. And it would be completed in about three years. He would see this temple completed. As a matter of fact, the one that laid the foundation stones, Zerubbabel, you, you think of like a ribbon cutting and they're going to start to, and they dig a little golden shovel into the dirt. Well, that was Zerubbabel. And so when they started rebuilding this temple two or three years, or it was actually almost 14 years earlier, and then they stopped for 15 years or so, he was the one that put the golden shovel into the ground. He was the one that laid that first stone. And here he is now discouraged. It's never going to happen. We had these great dreams and so on and so forth, and nothing came of it. Hear the promises to him. This great mountain that was in front of you is going to be leveled. And Zerubbabel, you yourself are going to put the final stone on the top of this temple here. The work's going to be completed. And Zerubbabel, you're going to know that it wasn't you, but it was God. Grace, grace to it, he says. Now the passage goes on. Start, uh, picking up again in verse 8. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands will also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Sixteen years had passed since they had come back to the land and they almost immediately got to work starting to rebuild. And sixteen years have passed. And they hadn't made much progress at all. 
And the people were discouraged. Zerubbabel was discouraged. You remember from the book of Haggai, this is what was said to those discouraged people. This is Haggai chapter 2. Notice, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor, and to Joshua, the high priest, and to all the people. And this is what they said. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing before your eyes? That describes a discouragement that these folks were dealing with. The Lord says, not too impressive, is it? And they all have to agree, no, it's not. But the Lord then here in Zechariah says, look, despite that, and despite the fact that you're rightfully discouraged, this place is a mess. He says, despite the fact that you're rightfully discouraged, he says, be encouraged, because the day is coming when this work will be completed. And then he adds, and it's not going to be like some far off distant day, but it's going to happen in Zerubbabel's day. And he himself is going to be the one that lays the capstone. The one that laid the foundation will also be the one that lays the capstone. And then it's almost as if he sees like on Zerubbabel's face, like, yeah, right. And he said, and then you'll know that what I'm saying to you is true. You can see that there at the end of verse 9. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, encouraging a discouraged individual. Now notice this. We're talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. And not by might, not by power, but by the Holy Spirit. But notice, that doesn't mean that Zerubbabel doesn't have to do any work. I'll just sit here on the beach. Holy Spirit, do what you want to do. You know, yeah, I want you to pick up a book and I want you to read it. I want you to get up early. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to go and I want you to start using your gifts and serving other people. All of that is what the Holy Spirit uses to do his work in our lives. And so there weren't going to be any shortcuts. This temple wasn't going to descend from heaven in Zerubbabel's day and, you know, be done. And be like, wow, Lord, that's amazing. The promise of the Holy Spirit here is as the people do their work for the Lord and as they're dependent upon the Lord, the Lord will do his work. So look at verse 10. He says, whoever has despised the day of small things will rejoice and, will see the, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And talk, goes on and talks about the eyes of the Lord. The problem, I think, with a lot of us regarding God's work in our lives or through our lives is this tendency to despise the day of small things. So the Lord here, he promises a good work. He does that in our lives as well. And we're all for it, right? I want God to do a good work in my life and through my life. Who's not for that? Anybody here not through that? We'll have counseling after for you. All right. We're all for that. We want God to do this work. But I think what we want is God to impart that miraculously. And so I go to a retreat. I sit. I paid my money to come with these weird people all weekend. I sat through all of those messages. I came home. Now I want to be changed forever. Just like that. I had my quiet time. I did it every day this week. Now I want to be changed forever. I came to church. I committed myself. I was going to be there every single Sunday this year. Now I want to be changed forever. And the reality is it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And we're not too much of a fan of this idea of seeing the completion of God's work brick upon brick upon brick upon brick. God's been changing my life for 30 years. And I need another 30 
for him to really keep changing me into his image. There's so much that God has to do in every single one of us. It's not something that happens in an instant. It's this process of what God is doing. And sometimes it feels like I get two bricks on, and then I drive, and I drop a brick. Because of you people that drive out there. Frustrating. The other day, I couldn't believe it. What is going on out here in Ewing Township? The people driving their car. It wasn't me, of course. It was them. It was all them. I think the placing of one brick upon another brick upon another brick, that's the small thing that almost every one of us so often has the tendency to despise. You know, we think, those of us that are married, we think we want a great marriage, right? And so we go off to a weekend to remember with those people, I forget who they are, but it's a great little weekend kind of thing. You should do it if you've never done it. And we come home and we think, my marriage is going to be perfect. My wife and I, can I tell this story? Yeah. We, went on, <laughs> we went on one of those weekends to remember, and it was a weekend to remember. We got in a fight at the weekend to remember. <laughs> and it was awful. I don't want to be here, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. But we think, if I go to one of those, I'll come back changed forever. That's not how it works. You go to one of those, you learn some valuable lessons that you begin to apply to your life, that's going to change you over the long haul. But we don't like it that way. Because what do we do? We despise the day of small things. It's not the way it works. It doesn't just happen miraculously. It's as we rely upon the Holy Spirit and do the hard work he has given for us to do, that brick upon brick upon brick, God completes the work. It's been said, any worthwhile work always begins small and progresses from that point. Commentator I really enjoy, especially his commentary on the Minor Prophets, is a man by the name of James Montgomery Boyce, out of, used to be out of Philly. And he said this, he said, victories will be won now as then, only by those who advance toward them one step at a time. And so whether we're talking about marriages or we're talking about raising our kids or we're talking about God's sanctifying work in our lives and the frequent stumbles that we face or we're talking about our ministry efforts here as a church or a ministry or just us individually in who we are in our relationship with God, we ever have to be careful not to despise the day of small things because it's the day of small things that are part of the very important learning process that God has for us. It's as we learn things in the day of small things, we're going to apply those things in the day, so to speak, of big things. And the day of small things must always precede the day of big things. And ours is to embrace the days that we find ourselves presently in, making sure that whatever those days might be, maybe they're small, maybe they're a little bit bigger, Maybe they're gargantuan. But the, the days that we find ourselves in, ever working to rely on God's Holy Spirit for his strength and his power in our lives. And putting those two together. I think two things happen, if I may. When it's really small, well, I don't really need God for this. But God, you know, when, when we get to the big things, I'm going to need you, so stay near. Or... If we progress through the small things, we get to the big things. You know what, God? I think I got it all figured out now, but thanks for all your help along the way. 
And both of those are mistakes. We need to ever, ever be relying on God and his Holy Spirit. Because it's not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit. Verse 11 says, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? A second time I answered him, he says, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know? Come on, man. That's why I'm asking. He says, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of all the earth. Now, in Zechariah's day, that would have been Zerubbabel and Joshua. The two anointed ones that stood by the uh, Lord of all the earth, we saw it in chapter 3, we see it here in chapter 4, that were so discouraged and wondered, how am I ever going to be able to lead these people to do what God would have us to do? And God says, well, you need to be near the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be in proximity to that flowing oil of the Holy Spirit, symbolically of the Holy Spirit, that will empower you for the work that you need to do. In Zechariah's day, that's Zerubbabel and Joshua. What's interesting, this verse or passage is quoted in the book of Revelation, and there it's applied to somebody else. And in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, we learned that those, you may be familiar with it, those two witnesses that are outside of Jerusalem, if you're not familiar with the whole book of Revelation, there will be these two prophets of God, voices of God that will speak and they'll be miraculously protected by God and they will speak a word to the people of the world in that day, including the powers that be, the Antichrist and so on. And it says this in Revelation, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's half of seven years, usually uh, lumped in there with the Great Tribulation. Remember the seven year period of time is called the Tribulation. The first three and a half years is that apparently is not too bad. But then the Antichrist turns and his real wickedness comes out and we call that latter half of those seven years the Great Tribulation. Great persecution, great death, all of these signs from heaven and so on. And so these two prophets or these two witnesses, they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, mourning. Verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Now, we're never actually told who those two witnesses are. Commonly, a lot of people think it's Moses and Elijah. Regardless of who specifically they are, we do know that this passage from Zechariah is applied to these two individuals here in the book of Revelation. And so in Zechariah's day, it stood for Joshua and Zerubbabel. In uh, the last days, I'm going to suggest it's going to stand for Moses and Elijah. They are the two branches that come out of this olive tree. The olive tree is the source of the power, right? And these are the two branches that sort of bring the power to the people here, these representatives. And I think they represent the kingly leadership of Israel, the civil leadership, and the spiritual leadership. Zerubbabel, the governor... Joshua, the high priest. And so, what's God have for us? Well, I think today God would have this for us. Number one, don't despise the day of small things. Tomorrow morning when you're faced with whether you're going to get up and you're going to read your Bible or you're just going to scroll through Facebook before you've got to get off to where you need to go or Instagram, whatever it might be, and you make that choice to, to do your Bible study, know this, that that is one brick in your life that's going to be stacked on another one the next day and another one the next day. 
And that's what's going to build your spiritual walk with Christ. When you think what you're doing, what's the big deal? Why bother? That don't despise the day of small things. Stick to it. Continue on it. And watch how your life is built upon it. Amen, friends? That's the first thing. Number two, work as hard as you can. Zerubbabel, he had to pick up the plumb line. Zerubbabel had to lay the bricks with his own hands. Work as physically hard as you can, as mentally hard as you can. Give yourself with all you got to the tasks that God has for you. And as you do that, ever rely upon God's Holy Spirit. God, I need you in this. As I lift another heavy brick. You're going to do the work, but he's going to do the work. Amen? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that reminder. And maybe it's a lesson learned for some that have never even learned it before. Lord, I think uh, the longer we are in relationship with you, we can have the tendency to just begin to create good habits in our life and not even need you anymore. And then we get to the circumstances that become overwhelming and we cry out in desperation, I can't do this. And Lord, I, I think that's a measure of your grace because you bring us to the end of ourselves that we might cry out to you. I think of Peter as he was trying to walk on that water and was walking on the water when he kept his eyes on you. But as soon as he began to look down at his own feet and the wind and the waves, he began to sink. But God, how kind of you in that passage to reach down your hand to pull him up as soon as he cried out to you. And so, Lord, maybe in a fresh way today, we've been reminded here this morning of our need to depend upon the Holy Spirit to complete the work of God that you have for us. That's a good place for us to be. Maybe this week was a hard week for some of us. And we failed and we've come to the end of ourselves. But may this morning, may we all be reminded. Reach out your hand, he'll grab it. As the branch will never bear fruit apart from the vine, neither will we apart from you. Lord, burn that into our hearts this morning, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.